Before Meg comes forward to offer the scripture reading for the morning, I thought I would spend just a brief moment to help set the context for the reading that you're about to hear. By way of introduction, it's an acknowledgement that many of us, probably at one point in our lives, had to read the great Shakespearean play Macbeth. In Act 5, Scene 1 of that great play, Lady Macbeth uttered the very famous words, Out, damned spot, out, I say. And she was saying these words because she was so overcome with guilt about her part in the murder of King Duncan to the point where she was hallucinating bloodstains on her body. Despite all of her constant hand-washing, she could not remove that stain from her conscience. Little could William Shakespeare have known that when he wrote that play, some 400 years later in 2006, some researchers at Northwestern University would coin a phrase to describe a phenomenon that they called the Macbeth effect which they understand to mean the link between one's mind and one's body, that psychosomatic link between a person's guilty conscience and one's personal hygiene, of all things. In one research experiment, they talked to two different groups. In the first group, they asked students to remember a time in their life when they did something that they weren't proud of that they committed a deed that they now say is unethical, like the betrayal of a friend or doing something wrong. To the second group, they asked those students, in contrast, to remember a time in their life when they did something noble, something good, something virtuous. For example, a time when they returned money that they had found that had belonged to someone else. But here's where it's interesting. After asking both groups of students to reflect on their memory, they gave both groups the same choice. They said you could either receive from us as a token of thanks for your time a free pencil, or you could receive from us a packet of hand sanitary wipes. And here's what they discovered that those people who were asked to relive an unethical episode in their lives were twice as likely to receive the hand sanitizer wipes and immediately tore open the packet and wiped their hands before they left the room. In another research experiment, uh, it showed that people who felt guilty about some transgression that they'd committed in their life were significantly more likely to offer themselves as a volunteer in some project in the community to improve the community. One professor said, quote, it's sometimes called symbolic cleansing or moral cleansing, and it's an attempt to repair one's moral identity. But here's where it gets interesting. These same people who said yes to offering themselves as a volunteer in some community project the moment they were given the opportunity in that room to wash their hands with soapy water and warm water, the moment they were able to get their hands cleaned, their willingness to follow through on their volunteer project was cut in half. 
Now, the scripture reading that you're about to hear is from the book of Leviticus, and it is, for all practical purposes, a cleansing ritual. As you hear these words, you're going to find some of the terminology to be very odd, some of the imagery to be utterly bizarre, because frankly, it is not common for worship services to have a reading from Leviticus, and I have to say, this is the first time I've ever preached on this text. But to help you set the context, the main figure in this story is none other than the great high priest Aaron. And you will hear the precise formula that God gave to Aaron to go through the cleansing of people's sins. It's going to seem odd, the imagery will seem weird, but just remember that instead of warm soapy water, you'll hear an image about the blood of bulls. Instead of a hand sink and a bathroom and a, and a wash towel, you will hear weird things like incense pans and goats. But as you hear these admittedly odd and antiquated words, keep in mind this fundamental truth about the human condition, which is this. All of us will go at any length, will go at great lengths to clean ourselves up from our past. So with that in mind, we invite Meg Fernandez to come up and read for us today's scripture passage. Thank you, McGray. Hear the word of God from Leviticus chapter 16, verses 11 through 16. This reading comes from the Common English Bible. You can find this reading on page 91 in the Pew Bible. Aaron will offer the bull for his purification offering to make reconciliation for himself and his household. He will slaughter the bull for his purification offering. Then he will take an incense pan full of burning coals from the altar from before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground perfumed incense and bring them inside the inner curtain. He will put the incense on the fire before the Lord so that the cloud of incense conceals the cover that is on top of the covenant document or else he will die. He will take some of the bull's blood and sprinkle it with his finger on the cover from the east side. He will then sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times in front of the cover. Then he will slaughter the goat for the people's purification offering. Bring the blood inside the inner curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He will sprinkle it on the cover and in front of the cover. In this way, he will make reconciliation for the inner holy area because of the pollution of the Israelites and because of their rebellious sins, as well as for all their other sins. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. All right, y'all got all that? There will be a test later. I thought about maybe recreating the whole scene right up here in the altar, just in case y'all have some sins you want cleaned. There is an interesting dimension to this story that is not in this chapter. It actually occurs five chapters before in Leviticus 10 that I think is very important to keep in mind. 
In the first two verses of Leviticus 10, we find out that that same high priest, Aaron, also had four sons. And in just those two verses, we find out that two of those sons had done something, we don't quite know what, but they had done something to break the law of God. They had committed some disobedience against God's commandments. The details are sketchy, but we do know what happened. That Because they broke God's commandments, God killed them. Now, I know that that's a troubling part of biblical theology. That's not something we quite know what to do with. But, in fact, it is a question that drifts into our minds in the wake of tragedy. Where is God's role in the midst of all this suffering? Why do innocent people have to die? What is God's part in all of the misery that we face? Couldn't God have done something to stop it? We understand those questions. We've asked those questions. And fortunately, our faith is big enough to ask them. But at the end of the day... Knowing what happened just five chapters before suddenly brings to light a brand new and deeply significant part of the story from today's Scripture reading. Because the moment we can get past all of this fanciful and odd antiquated imagery about bull's blood and incense pans and inner and outer curtains and the blood of goats and the sprinkling of blood, then we can focus on what's really happening here in the life of Aaron the high priest, because as he walks into the Holy of Holies and follows the prescription that God had given to them, he is not only cleansing the sins of the entire Israelite people on the Day of Atonement, he's also acknowledging his own grief and his own guilt over what happened to his boys and the part that he could have played to avoid it. You see, Aaron is walking in not only to cleanse the guilt of his people, but the guilt of his own past. And just like Lady Macbeth, Aaron discovered what all of humanity knows, that some stains are just too hard to scrub away on our own. Soap and water just doesn't do it. The deeper stains of guilt and shame require something stronger something far beyond our ability to cleanse on our own. This morning, I think it wouldn't take much work for you to fill in the blank with the stains that you're dealing with, with the things that you have seen and even committed in your past that are so deeply embedded into the fabric of your soul that you just can't scrub it away. And you know that you have them. Because you can identify it by the way you describe that moment in your mind with just those two simple words that begin those sentences that we cannot forget, those words, if only, if only, if only I had been more disciplined, I would not have given in to that temptation. If only I had handled that situation differently, then I wouldn't have made such a dumb mistake. If only I had been a better parent, if only I had been a better spouse, if only I'd been a better family member, if only I'd been a better communicator, if only I had a different past, if only I were born into a different environment, if only I knew then what I now know about myself, if only, if only, if only. 
You know, there are a lot of ways that we can describe sin. The Christian church has developed lots of definitions for what sin is. Some of those definitions have to do with what we've done. Some of those definitions have to do with what we haven't done. Some of those definitions are comprehensive in terms of describing the environment that we're born into or the condition of our souls that we had little to do about. But there is There is one definition that I think is comprehensive enough to cover all of those other definitions, and it is this. Sin is a stain that we cannot get out on our own. That stain of guilt, that that stain of shame, that stain of sin. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard of the phrase, Murphy's Law. In fact, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I suspect some of you are living Murphy's Law right now. Some of you could write a book on Murphy's Law. You've lived it so often. It it goes, of course, like this. If anything wrong will happen, it will go wrong. But I suspect that some of us are not as familiar with another law called Embassy's Law for the Conservation of Filth. And this is how that goes. It says, in order for something to become clean, something else must become dirty. In order for something to become clean, something else must become dirty. That's that's not a scientific law, but it is still a very true law. You experience this most every day. Think about it. Every time you want to clean something, Every time you want to take a shower or scrub your dishes or wash a car, you'll notice that the dirt doesn't just disappear into thin air. Something else has to get dirty for dishes or for body parts or for automobiles to become clean. A dishwasher has to become dirty or a sponge or a washcloth or a bathtub need to become dirty. And Basie's law is a practical law. But it's also a biblical and theological law. Because in order for sin to go away, it cannot just disappear. It has to go somewhere. And for us to be removed of our sin, something, or in this case, someone, has to become dirty. And so in that context, the great high priest Aaron beset by the stain of his own past, walks into the Holy of Holies and follows the prescription from Almighty God to follow the formulas of blood and incense and curtains to wash away not only the sins of his people but so that God can wash away the sins of his own past. You know, Hebrew tradition called for the presence of two goats in that formula. I mean, why not? You've already got a blood, bloody bowl and you've got an incense pan. Why not throw some goats into the mix? There were always two goats. One of those goats was for killing so that the blood of that goat can be poured out onto an offering and it burnt up as an, as an offering to God. But the other goat was always kept alive so that that goat could then receive symbolically the sins of the entire people over that past year and placed onto the flesh of that goat 
And then that goat would then be brought to the outer perimeter of that community and set free into the wild to scamper away never to return. This is where we get the concept of scapegoat. That that goat would then bear the dirtiness and the filth and the sins of all the people and take it upon itself never to return. It should be no wonder then that when the New Testament authors came around to trying to figure out the meaning and significance of Jesus on the cross, they linked their understanding to that grand Hebrew tradition, identifying Jesus as not only being the high priest Aaron, who stands in mediation between us and God, but that Jesus was also the scapegoat, that which needed to become dirty so that all of us could be clean from our sins. Listen to the way that the book of Hebrews, and I think the the clearest, grandest passage to describe this in the entire Bible, listen to to the way Hebrews describes it. It says, but Christ has appeared as the high priest of the good things that have happened. He passed through the greater and more perfect meeting tent, which isn't made by human hands. That is, it's not a part of this world. He entered the holy of holies once for all. By his own blood, not by the blood of goats or calves, securing our deliverance for all time. And if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkled ashes of cows made spiritually contaminated people holy and clean, how much more will the blood of Jesus wash our consciences clean from dead works in order to serve the living God. He offered himself to God through the eternal spirit as a sacrifice without any flaw. In other words, Jesus became dirty so that we can become clean from our sins. Shouldn't be a surprise then that when the poets and the hymn writers of the faith started to understand this biblical metaphor. They wrote some of the grandest poetry and hymns in the canon of our hymnal. We began the service by singing one of them, the hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. We don't sing this hymn too often in this church. I wonder why. I mean, there is a fountain filled with blood. Forget about dying the river green yesterday. We could have died the fountain water red. The Westboro folks would have loved that, I'm sure. But listen, that's not in my manuscript. Maybe we can edit that out later. Listen to the way this hymn describes the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. There in the the first verse, the dying, the second verse, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away, wash all my sins away, wash all my sins away, and there may I, vile as he, wash all my sins away. We're going to close this service with another great one. You all may know the hymn, Rock of Ages. Listen to verse 3 of that great hymn. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I, to the fountain fly. There's that fountain imagery again. I fly to the fountain, wash me, Savior, or I die. It's no wonder 
that this atonement theory has been so popular throughout the ages, this cleansing atonement theory is so relevant to our experience today, even though it's based on imagery that is so odd and so bizarre and so antiquated. And it is okay, it is reasonable to suggest that for some people, this atonement theory just may be too odd to understand or to believe. As we go through each of these atonement theories, once again, we will articulate both the pros and the cons to each theory with a reminder that if you disagree with any of these theories, that's okay. We can agree to disagree just as the church has done throughout its history. For some people, this imagery just might be too bizarre to believe with our own contemporary ears. For others, this imagery still may be simply too violent with this understanding that God would require the killing of one life in order for the rest of humanity to be saved. There are pros and cons to each one, and we have many more atonement theories to go. But let's make no mistake, this atonement theory underscores something that all of us can claim to be true within our own life, which is this. We know what it's like to have stains in our life that we can't get out on our own. We are haunted by memories of our past, just like Aaron was haunted by the skeletons in his own family closet just like Lady Macbeth was haunted by the guilt in her own conscience. And so just like a wine stain on a carpet or a blood stain on the fabric of our clothing, the shame and the guilt from our past just lingers in a way where it is impossible for us to make ourselves clean as hard as we try because there's always that residue that remains that reminds us of just how weak and limited we are all of those gripping addictions, all of those bad choices, all of those private secrets from our past, all of those attempts to take failed shortcuts and quick fixes to address the sin from our past, all of these attempts to clean up our own life. Maybe you're tired of scrubbing. Maybe you're tired of trying to wash yourself clean. Just try as you might. There's always that residue that remains. And what it produces is this underlying discontentment with your life, with this underlying worry and anxiety about your future, with this ongoing strain in your relationships with other people, painful memories, haunting guilt. The Bible says it very clearly. We do not need to clean up our own stains because we cannot. We need only depend on what God has offered to us in Jesus Christ because on that cross and in the empty tomb, God's very own heart has been poured out for all of creation and we have been cleansed and purified from even the nastiest stains. This cleansing atonement theory says this unequivocally that Jesus is the ultimate cleansing agent. Jesus is even more powerful than OxyClean. Jesus is all-powerful. Jesus is all-purpose. Jesus is the stain-fighting work of God. And if we will simply stop scrubbing and surrender with humility to the cleansing power of Jesus Christ, then certainly, today, 
perhaps for the very first time, you and I can not only be cleaned, we can also feel clean. Let us pray together. Oh God, it is hard to keep scrubbing. We, we have tried so hard in our life to cleanse ourselves from the things that we've done, to free ourselves from the guilt and shame of our own conscience. We are genuinely sorry. We repent of those things that we have done to ourselves and to others. All that is left, O oh God, is to stop scrubbing. That's what we hear from you today, as hard as it might be. You remind us that in your Son, Jesus, we have all the cleansing power we need. It is simply by your grace that you have come into our lives to do that which we could not do on our own. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your love. We commit ourselves to you to live a pure, holy, and clean life, which begins simply by your grace. God, we cannot possibly know the diversity of stories that are in this sanctuary this morning, all of the ways in which we can fill in the blank with the sins from both our past and our present. In this moment, in the, in the stillness of this moment, we pledge our surrender to you and ask that not another day would go by in our Lenten journey lest we forget what you have done for us in Jesus. We ask for your strength. We ask for your courage as we thank you for your forgiveness and your love that we might go now into the world and be a medium of cleansing for a world that is so broken and filthy. We give you thanks for the love made real in Jesus, whose name we pray. Let all God's people say, Amen.